From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Wyndham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said, you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old, telling us about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci. I'm welcoming, I'm glad to be welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on April 25th, 2023. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and special thanks to those here in our live online audience. So, so glad to have you. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide space for people to tell first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. We're really happy to be here with you. Since we believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners, I do want to share with you a few suggestions for making the most of the online format that we are still in. First, if you do keep your video on, which we love when you do, you can have big physical reactions in order to connect with the rest of the audience and the tellers. Um, for instance, here, let's practice one. Pretend you're touched by a story. And now how about cheer for someone in a story? All right, great. Um, so work on those. You can also express reactions in the chat box. And remember that we do usually have time for a Q&A at the end of the hour. So put questions you have in the chat as well for the tellers. Tonight's theme is one thing leads to another. We'll hear stories from Nina Lasiga, Arnie Alpert, and Ruth. Rupa Mohan, followed by question and answer with the tellers and a short interview of Rupa by David Frainer.
Pat Spaulding is our MC tonight. Please join me in welcoming her. Yay, Pat! I'm, I'm exasperated. I unmuted and it muted me back again. All right, I'm here unmuted and ready to rock and roll. Once again, here, I'm going to start off by introducing Nina Lasiga. She lives in Stratford, Connecticut. Following a 30-year career as a chemist, <laughs> Nina became a storyteller and a ukulele player who now coaches, teaches, and encourages both pursuits. Nina MCs artists standing strong together, an adults-only storytelling program. She hosts The Bat, perhaps it's B-A-T, we can find out what that stands for, Storytelling Exchange, and is a producer for Pachacacha Night. Bridgeport, Connecticut. Nina's true tales are insightful, humorous stories of uncommon adventure. You can find out more at her website, www.lesiga.workfolio.com. We'll post that in the, the chat if you're interested. In the story she'll share with us tonight, Nina would like to remind us that food can be used as an expression of kindness and love especially potatoes. Her story's title is Snow Potatoes, whatever they are. Let's welcome Nina. Come on up, Nina. Thank you, Pat. Wonderful to be here with you and uh, love seeing all the people in the audience tonight. Here's my story. Did you burn your mouth? I shook my head no. It's 1962, I'm six years old, and I just lied to my mother. I just got out of school. I went to PS 139 in Brooklyn, New York, and I felt so grown up because my mother let me walk one block all by myself to meet her at the corner. And it was a really long block and it was full of Victorian houses with well manicured lawns. It was very special. And there's my mother on the corner and she, it's winter time it's freezing out and she's got a, on a head babushka a wool hat a coat a boot uh, boots and she's holding on to a baby carriage it's black cadillac brand with white round wheels and in her hand is this parcel some some people might call it a hobo sack it's a babushka, which is a flowered European wool scarf. And she goes to me, Ninochka, take a look inside. And I am so surprised. I see baked potatoes covered in tin foil. My mother's babushka was always filled of baked potatoes. See, we went home for lunch every day at school. And when after my mother brought us back to school, she would go back and pull out her old fashioned potato baker. It was this pan with vents and a dome top and the potatoes, she would cook them on top of her gas range and the potatoes would come out charred and smoky tasting as if you had baked them over a campfire. I could never wait to taste one of those potatoes. 
She always says, Ninachka, please let it cool off before you start eating it. I couldn't wait. I took a bite and I always cinched my tongue. But I felt the warm goodness slide down me. So I felt warm inside and holding the potato, I felt, felt warm outside. But the neighborhood kids, they were all around. They go, there they go. The Raises again, eating baked potatoes. You see, their parents had loads of money. They had nice snacks after, after school. They had these chocolate desserts called ringdings. It was chocolate-covered devil's food with some cream inside or a similar uh, pastry called yodels, which was like a pinwheel imposter of a, of a ringding or they had a slice of pizza. And potatoes were not in style then. It just showed that we were poor. Well, anyway, we, we were walking to dancing school and I am enjoying my baked potato and I am holding it and biting it. I'm trying to make smoke, uh, smoke signals in the air. Not successfully, may I ask. And uh, we enjoyed them. But when I graduated many years later to junior high school, my mother graduated us to crinkle cut French fries. You see, we walked home for, for you know, after school. And I remember I'm putting my key in the lock and turning, the, turning it open and the apartment door would open. I would smell perfume of potatoes as I entered the apartment. And then as I walked down the hallway to the kitchen, I heard the sizzling, crackling oil. And she used one of these old fashioned crinkle cut cutters and she hand peeled and cut all the potatoes and she fried them until they were crispy brown on the outside. And I couldn't wait to dip that potato into the ketchup. There was nothing better than that. I said, Mom, do you think I can bring some friends over tomorrow? She goes to the window. And you might think that's strange, but in the Brooklyn house we lived on, there was a little compartment under the window that had no insulation. So it was like a Brooklyn refrigerator and she checked and she, I have a five pound bag, bring them on. And so I, they came over the next day and I was really, really nervous because they had fancy houses, they had fancy furniture. Many of them had plastics over the, the sofa seats and backs and maids and we, we were nothing like that. But they did enjoy the potato snacks because one thing they didn't have was this kind of treat after school. I was still very nervous, but it went okay. In high school, I made the connection between my tightening jeans and potato snacks. See, we only went shopping once a year and your clothes for school had to fit. Uh, and so potato snacks became a memory until many decades later, I moved to Connecticut. And it was really snowy outside. I did something silly. I bought a house with a long driveway. 
So I needed to hire someone to shovel the snow so I can get my car out of the garage. And his name was Angelo. And he came to my house and he had a wool hat on. His cheeks were bright red and he's ready to shovel me out. And I am feeling so bad because I am sitting inside my warm, cozy kitchen and he's freezing to death thinking, what can I do for Angelo? And I said, I know, I'll bake him some potatoes. I didn't have a gas range. I didn't have one of those old fashioned potato bakers. I didn't have time. The microwave would have to do. So I washed the potatoes, lovingly punctured them with a fork, wrapped them up in paper towels, microwaved them, and they are ready just in time. I wrapped each one in tinfoil, put my cat, my coat, my hat, my gloves, my scarf on, and went outside and said, Angelo, I baked for you. He thought he was getting muffins and he's holding the potatoes in his hands. What are these baked potatoes? And he looks so confused. Angelo, hasn't anyone gifted you baked potatoes in the snow before? He says, no, this is a first, but they make good hand warmers, but I am never going to eat them. And he shoves them in his pockets. And I was disappointed. I was upset because I had just explained to him that potatoes were part of where I come from. I told him my mother always used to give us baked potatoes in the snow because they warmed us inside and out. And he hesitated as if he was going to say more, but then he stopped because I think he realized if he said more, I just might not tip him. And that was correct. After he left, I thought about things and I realized that we both grew up 100 miles apart, but we were like in different worlds. And so maybe all I needed to do is to give it time. So every time Angelo came to plow out my driveway, I made him two baked potatoes. And again, he would say, oh, these make such good hand warmers, but I am never going to eat them. Okay, I understand. And I would go back. It was a really snowy winter. Angelo came a lot. And then one day he had a different kind of look on his face. He goes, you know, I want to let you know that I started eating the potatoes. Oh, Angelo, I'm so glad that you like my baked potatoes. Aren't they wonderful? And thank you so very much and said goodbye. And I waited for his truck to pull out. And then I laughed until I cried because Angela kept telling me he was never going to eat those potatoes. So I stopped washing them.
my remorse turned into triumph as I realized I had stepped in my mother's footsteps. I had made something very simple, very special. And by eating my potatoes, Angela accepted me and my family's tradition of snow potatoes. Thank you all. Thanks, Dana. <laughs> um, I think maybe uh, you you should have offered him some butter and sour cream. You know, maybe that would have changed the dynamic. I I graduated I graduated him to salt. Okay. <laughs> well, I was definitely hungry through this whole story. I really like the idea of the the potatoes over the campfire, kind of burned on the outside like your mother made. I want those potatoes. <laughs> And I had potatoes last night and I'm so happy I did. Yes, potatoes. <laughs> Thank you. Alrighty, I guess we're gonna get on to our next story. This is one by Arnie Alpert from Canterbury, New Hampshire. He retired in 2020 after many years directing the Concord Office of the American Friends Service Committee and working in the No Nukes movement. Over the course of four decades, he had plenty of opportunities to organize demonstrations, train people for nonviolent action, and engage in political theater. In this return appearance by popular demand to True Tales Live, Arnie will take us back to a time 46 years ago when a trip to Seabrook was the first stop on an unexpected journey. Let's hear more in his story, Kangaroo Court. Come on up, Arnie. Thanks, Pat. Um, you know, Pat, I still think of this as being in Portsmouth. So I'm, I'm a little bit behind the times perhaps, but um, I remember when I was a kid growing up in Massachusetts, we used to often spend our summers in Maine and we would go through Portsmouth. So I thought of Portsmouth was a place to go through and go over the old drawbridge. This was before I-95 was built. And it was a big deal when we saw the drawbridge and we knew we were getting to Maine. It was very exciting. But it, this story is actually about the first time that I went to Portsmouth. And it's also the first time, a story about the first time I went to Concord, which is Pat mentioned, I worked there for 39 years as the director of the American Friends Service Committee. The American Friends Service Committee, or AFSC, is a venerable organization founded on the principles of the Quakers, including equality and nonviolence and adherence to the truth and the tradition of plain speaking. But this story actually starts in Seabrook, where on April 30th, 1977, I was one of approximately 1,800 people who went onto the construction site where Public Service Company of New Hampshire was building a nuclear power plant. And we believed at the time, and I still believe, that nuclear power was dangerous, that there was a risk of catastrophic accidents, that the routine emission of low levels of radiation was harmful to human health and the environment. We believed that the power plant was going to be so expensive that it was going to drive up electric rates. We believed that there were safer renewable alternatives from hydro and solar and wind that would be a much better way for us to meet our energy needs in the time ahead. And we believe that the companies that were building the power plant were basically just in it for the money 
and that, in fact, it was inconsistent with principles of democracy. Now, not only was it inconsistent with principles of democracy to build large, centralized, privately controlled power plants, but the people of Seabrook and surrounding communities had actually voted to say they didn't want a nuclear power plant, but yet the government was going to force it through against their will. So we marched onto the construction site, all having been trained in the principles and techniques of nonviolence, the principles of Mahatma Gandhi, the principles of Martin Luther King, the principles of the early Quakers. And we pitched our tents and we said, we are not leaving until construction is permanently and irrevocably halted as part of an organization that was called the Clamshell Alliance. Now, Governor Meldrum Thompson was the governor at the time, and he was the nuclear plant's biggest cheerleader. And he did not like our presence there. Uh, and after we were there for a whole day, uh, we were joined by hundreds of police who came from all over New England. And it was announced that if we didn't leave, we would be placed under arrest. And some people left. But um, when they started arrests, um, there were still more than 1,000 people were there. And they gradually arrested every single one of us until they reached the number of 1,415. And we were placed on school buses or National Guard army trucks, army trucks and brought away. Now, as you can imagine, the town jail was not big enough to hold 1,415 people. So they brought us up to the National Guard Armory in Portsmouth and put us in the parking lot where we spent the night, in my case, inside a National Guard Army truck and got to know a whole bunch of people who started out as strangers and became my best friends over the course of the night. The next day, we were marched through the armory. We were booked, charged with criminal trespass, put back on our trucks and buses and brought off to other National Guard armories, to Dover, to Summersworth, to Manchester, and in my case, to Concord where we moved in. So this was my very first trip to Cochrane, New Hampshire. Um, in the National Guard Armory, we had plenty of time on our hands. So we did a lot of singing. We held a lot of workshops about nonviolence, about the dangers of nuclear power and nuclear weapons and about solar energy. And we talked a lot about the problems of the criminal legal system, including the problem of bail. Now bail then as now is a very discriminatory system. It is unfair because it is based oftentimes largely not on whether people are reliable folks who will come to court when they're supposed to, but it's based on race, based on income, and based on where you live. So we agreed with each other, by and large, that we were not going to leave the armory, we were not going to pay bail, and we were not going to leave until everybody had been was going to be allowed to leave on their own recognizance. That's a legal term that means basically a promise to show up in court when you're supposed to. And we were there for day after day after day. Uh, now, obviously, some people did have to leave because they had commitments to work or family or school. But at the end of a couple of weeks, there were still five or 600 of us in these different armories. And every day, the news media was telling the story. So here's an example. Uh, my mom back in Massachusetts was getting calls from her friend saying, we hear Arnold got arrested. And she would say, well, he believes that nuclear power is dangerous because, but over the course of the two weeks, as she's reading the news stories in Time Magazine or Newsweek and the daily papers, and the news media is not just covering the fact that we all got arrested, they're starting actually to cover why we got arrested and why we believe that nuclear power was bad. By the end of this period of time, people are calling up my mom and she has now internalized the arguments. 
And instead of attributing the danger of nuclear power to something that I think, she's now able to say nuclear power is dangerous because. And this is going on all over the region and possibly all over the country because there were people there from something like 36 different states who were participants in this. Well, Melvin Thompson realized that he was losing at this point. And not only was he losing the PR game, he also was spending something like $10,000 a day feeding us all. And he was actually sending out fundraising letters to try to raise money to pay, repay the state for the cost of feeding all of these nonviolent demonstrators who were busily uh, singing songs and holding workshops and getting attention in the news media. So finally, after two weeks, he had had enough. And that gave an opportunity to our lawyers to go in and have a meeting with the governor's people and make a deal. And here's what their deal was. They said, we will get all these people to go to court where you can just dispense with the trial and find them guilty as long as they automatically have the right to appeal their sentences uh, and appeal for a trial by jury in the superior court. Now, as you can imagine, there was a certain appeal to the idea that 1,415 of us were each going to get entitled to a jury of our peers where we'd be able to present the case for why we committed this terrible action of going and sitting peacefully on a construction site for a nuclear power plant. But there was something about getting convicted without actually having a trial, without the state even having to present any evidence of the alleged crime we had committed that just rubbed me the wrong way. It struck me that this was a kangaroo court. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Uh, I actually just looked it up just to make sure what it means. And this is what Merriam-Webster says. A kangaroo court is a mock court in which principles of law and justice are disregarded or perverted, or it is a court characterized by irresponsible, unauthorized, or irregular status or procedures. And that sure sounds like what we were facing. The kangaroo part, no one really knows, but it has to do with the sort of a the jerkiness of the motion of a kangaroo. But when I thought about this, I decided I was going to dress up as a kangaroo and go to court that way. Now, I had, at that time, I had a lot more hair than I did, than I do now. And I tied my hair up in pigtails to, symbol, to simulate kangaroo ears. And I got a piece of rope or something or other, and I tied it on my back to be a tail. Um, I had a bandana. So I sewed a bandana on my shirt to be a pouch. And I had some embroidery thread and I made a sock puppet of a kangaroo. And I put the kangaroo into the pouch and got in the army truck with a bus and went to the Hampton District Court where when it became my time, I hopped into the court with the kangaroo in my pouch, at which point, a stern looking police officer looked at me and said, you'll have to leave the kangaroo outside. So I passed the kangaroo to a friend, hopped into the court where like everyone else, I was found guilty and agreed to appeal my sentence and get a jury trial. Four and a half years later, when I was hired to be the New Hampshire program director for the American Friends Service Committee, one of the only things people knew about me was the story of me hopping in to the kangaroo court. Thank you. Oh, I love that story. Um, 
I spent some time myself, Arnie, as a kangaroo with another puppet kangaroo in my pouch. So I totally identify with this. <laughs> I didn't go to court. But um, one of the things that's funny about it is actually there was another person from the Manchester Armory who got the same idea and also fashioned a kangaroo outfit and hopped into court. <laughs> hey, go New Hampshire. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a good story of um, activism done well, social activism done well. And I, I loved hearing about how Meldrum Thompson, the whole thing backfired. It's so wonderful when when publicity will backfire on the bad guy and the, and the good guys, you know, get get the right attention. I, um, so thanks, thanks for sharing that. I think you probably have one, at least one or maybe more audience um, members who experience that with you. <laughs> maybe we'll find out later. Again, uh, again the, uh, the, the Seacoast area in particular was uh, full of people who were part of the Clamshell Alliance. And right. part of the story then, Pat, is as I mentioned, there were people from 35 or 36 states there. Well, they went back to where they came from and started similar alliances that were protesting nuclear power plants all over the country. And uh, we could, again, another time we'll tell the story of how the nuclear, the anti-nuclear movement grew and what its effect has been and what we're thinking now. But we'll have to save that for another episode of True Tales. We'll invite you back for the rest of the story. Thanks, Arnie. Alrighty, our final storyteller is Rupa Mohan. She is a professional storyteller from Walnut Creek, California, who, when she is not playing grandma, is busy braiding her childhood memories from India into well-crafted stories. She volunteers as a storyteller and docent at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, is on the board of the Storytelling Association of California, is a member of the Asian American Storytellers in Action, and has contributed stories from India to the YouTube channel Storytopia. Rupa is a, um, <clears throat> a Chautauqua, ch I practice this word, um, a, ch a Chautauqua, Okay, Rupa, you're going to have to help me. Chautauqua. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't say it now. I said it earlier this afternoon. Scholar, who is who just debuted her portrayal of Kasturba Gandhi. You can find out more at her website, www.rupamohan.com. And we'll put that also up in the chat. Now let's listen to a story of mishaps and triumphs in Rupa's attempts to follow the footsteps of her grandma, the master chef of her childhood home. Her story is titled, Even a Donkey Can. All right, Rupa, take it away. Namaste and greetings to everyone. When I was growing up in South India and reaching the marriageable age, I would often hear relatives ask me, do you know how to cook? After all, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I would ignore them because I didn't have any interest in cooking, nor did I want to get married. Well, my grandma, who was the queen of her kitchen, said, Rupa, don't worry. 
when the right time comes, even a donkey can learn to cook. And I believed her and I just kept studying and doing all the other things. But as luck would have it, I barely hit 20 and I was ready to be married and come away to a faraway country, the US of A. And I didn't know how to cook. I desperately went to my grandmother and she wrote down all her favorite recipes in a book and packed a big suitcase full of all kinds of utensils, spices and whatnot. And one November day in 1981, I took this long Pan Am flight from my hometown Madras, now known as Chennai, to San Francisco. My husband greeted me very happily and took me to his apartment. And he impressed me by giving me a very authentic South Indian meal that he had prepared with roasted potatoes and a stew-like thing that we call sambar. Well, I thought, maybe I don't have to learn to cook after all. But I was wrong. The next day, he handed me the ladle and said, I am tired of my student cooking, my dear. I have been waiting to have a wife. So you can take charge of the kitchen and be the queen of my kitchen. After all, you have a lot of time to practice. And that is what I did. I went back to my grandmother's recipe book. And the first thing I had to learn was how to temper mustard seeds. Something that any self-respecting South Indian cook has to learn. So here I was, I heated up some hot oil and I dropped these black mustard seeds into it. And it started popping, releasing wonderful flavor. But the thing is, if you don't put a lid on it at the right time, it can pop out and scald you. And that's what it did. Those rogue mustard seeds every time would come and pop out and scald my wrist, my neck, sometimes even my cheeks. And it stung and I would cry. Along with chopping onions which made me cry even more and made me miserably homesick. Well, what was I to do when I had all these mishaps in those early days? Like when the pressure cooker decided to rock and roll and squat out all kinds of things like spinach and mung dal, even reaching up to the ceiling. What was I to do when I would be watching the young and the restless and chopping vegetables and I would chop a little piece of my finger? What was I to do when a cousin and I tried to bake a pineapple upside down cake and we set the oven on fire? And my husband luckily was there and happily came to the rescue playing fireman. Well, those were the difficult days. But after a few months, I started getting really confident and cocky and wanted to host my first dinner party. We invited three or four couples 
and ask them to come at six o'clock, knowing fully well that they will come at least an hour later, Indian standard time as we call it. Well, I started out very confidently in the morning, attacking a huge pile of vegetables and meticulously cutting them perfectly. It took me a few hours. And then I started cooking all the different curries and the stews on four of the stovetop. And they all started simmering and some started burning because I couldn't track all four of them at the same time, could I? Well, it was almost time, five o'clock. And I hadn't made the rotis. I was going to roll out this flat bread. My husband had offered to buy them from the Indian store. But no, I wanted to be like my grandma, making everything from scratch. And I just started rolling them out when there was a knock on the door. And a few guests had arrived, including an elderly lady. What? It was supposed to come two hours later, Indian Standard Time, 7 p.m. But they had misunderstood and they were here two hours earlier. Oh no, under their eagle eye, I got even more nervous. The rotis that were supposed to be round took on different shapes, including the map of India. And I barely finished it. And I noticed there was a huge pile of dishes I had created and my husband was busy talking to the guests and not attacking those dishes. I tried showing, showing him all these gestures. And finally he got it and he went and did the dishes. Well, the other guests came at IST, thankfully. And we started eating, but they all remarked how tired I looked. I was tempted to tell them that I had just run the marathon that day. Well, they started enjoying everything. But the elderly lady suddenly said, Rupa, my stomach is hurting. Maybe the eggplant that you made was too spicy. Oh dear, was I going to be poisoning my guests? Well, thankfully, nobody else was ill. And before they left, some of them very nicely told me that for a new bride and new cook, it was a pretty good effort, which I took as the highest compliment because in that generation, we Indians didn't pay compliments easily. So I decided that I was going to focus on my family from then on and not invite random people like this. And my family was growing. I had two girls very quickly and soon they were going to school. And of course, I had to be super mom and make their lunches from scratch. Well, I would get up early in the morning and roll out the rotis. This time they were rounder and I would fill them with potatoes or cauliflower. And I would make different colored rice, tomato rice, lemon rice, coconut rice. And I would pack these in what we call a tiffin carrier a two or three tiered container stacked one on top of the other, just like my grandma had packed for me. 
and it would come back empty. So I thought my girls were really enjoying this nutritious meal. But when I went to their school one day and it was lunchtime, I noticed all the kids were out playing except my two girls. They were sitting under a tree very sadly trying to finish their lunch until the bell rang. Well, I knew I had to cease and desist and start giving them lunch money. It didn't stop there. We would go on these road trips every summer with the family and often with both the grandmothers. And I would spend two days cooking up a storm, packing it in an igloo and putting it at the back of our minivan. And at night, when we got into the hotel, I would heat up everything in the microwave and feel so pleased that I was serving them home-cooked food. Until the grandmothers remarked, hmm, we hear that Taco Bell or McDonald's is a good option, even for vegetarians. So I conceded and we started enjoying these delights. Well, many decades have gone by and perhaps I have improved. Hmm, my husband says I have. But I'm not sure if this is the only way to a man's heart. What do you think? In any case, I had one little fiasco. Recently, last month, I forgot the rules. And I wanted to again be like my grandmother. So I made this big batter with rice and pulses and I set it in the oven. It is supposed to ferment a little bit and I thought the next day I could make dosas which are like thin uh, crepes, savory crepes. That is part of our South Indian uh, repertoire. And the next morning when I opened the oven door, <gasps> Looked like there had been a volcanic eruption and there was white lava all over the oven. It took me an entire week to clean that mess. Then I thought, you know what? I may not be queen of my kitchen, but I have to become queen of shortcuts. Yes, that's the smart way to be these days, right? And so I started outsourcing things and bringing in things from the Indian store, trying not to be like my grandmother who I love and adore. In any case, I think even a donkey can learn to cook. Yes. And even an old donkey needs to learn new tricks. Don't you think so? Thank you. Thanks, Rupa. <laughs> yes, I'm, um, I'm definitely an old, very old donkey. Um, trying to begin to learn how to cook at this late stage of the game, because, you know, somewhat like you, when I first got married, my husband cooked, and I thought, okay, this is going to be great. But then, you know, years went by, and the marriage ended, and then I never learned to cook, though. I just never did. Lately, 
HelloFresh uh, has been introduced to my life. And um, there's a minimal amount of cooking, but um, I feel like, oh, it's finally happening. I'm actually putting ingredients together and making a meal. So, yeah. That's good. <laughs> Better late than never. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Once again, I was very hungry listening to all those delicious <laughs> ingredients. Okay, we've, we've finished our storytellers tonight. Thank you all. And I'm going to give it over to Amy, who um, is going to uh, lead us into a few a little Q&A. And we're going to see some photos. Yes. Um, if you have questions, you can put them in the chat. Um, I already have a few here. And we do have some pictures to show. Um, I'm aware that David is going to be interviewing Rupa, so I'm going to especially start with some questions for our other tellers. And Nina, I wanted to ask you, first of all, let's see what I've got here. What, and if we miss this, sorry, but what was the language that your mom was speaking? What other language was in your house? Oh, she was speaking Russian. She said Ninochka. Lovely, sweet. Um, and what other foods, you know, what is there something else from your childhood in particular that stands out, something else your mom or grandmother or someone made that is still in your heart, like those potatoes? Well, yeah, that, um, on Sunday afternoons, we used to get Polish pierogies that were made at the church, you know, and they just don't taste like the ones that are made in the store. And though I don't eat this now, it was kielbasa. Which is a which is a um, a smoked meat. I'm vegetarian now, so I I, I pass on that. But my one of my grandmothers used to bring over pressed apricot, pressed dried apricot, which we would call shoe leather, and it was like a flat pancake on on a piece of um, plastic, and then they would roll it up. And she came every week with surprise after church with this apricot roll-up. That was like the best. And let's look at your pictures. Want to tell us about this? Okay, so this is just a couple of months after snow, uh, the, you know, when uh, the story begins, snow potatoes began. And my mother used to address us to the nines all the time. You can't see it in this picture, but... Um, I'm wearing, I'm second from the left, and I am wearing um, a dress with a crinoline and a cummerbund, and then, you know, fancy, fancy schmancy little, probably um, patent leather shoes with anklets. And uh, you could see, like, we, we, you know, we did things like putting flowers in our hair, and we had uh, laced handkerchiefs. And here, we are standing in front of the family house in New York. We're on the sidewalk in front of an antique store. So we lived in a two-family brick house over the antique store. And um, you know how, how you take the family photos? It's always in, in front of the store. <laughs> it was in our store. It was a rental. Um, Here I'm with my sisters and a, and a couple of visitors. Let me see if it'll work. There we go. And this one, another. Okay, so here's a, me. I'm on the left, and this is my two sisters. And I'm wearing saddle shoes. And in those days, uh, we all had spring coats, which was like a really big deal because used to go to. Uh, that was one of the few things my mother didn't sew. She sewed all our clothes. 
And so we would go to the famous May department store in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, you could see, uh, I guess I was, I was going for a different look. My sisters have like their, their, you know, weekend shoes and I had my school shoes on. That's very sweet. Thank you for sharing those. Um, that's great, Nina. Uh, I have a couple here for Arnie. So um, let me start by asking you uh, if you can give us a little bit of a summary of how things turned out in Seabrook. Well, there's a, that's a long, that, that re might require a long answer, Amy, based on the, the word, what you mean by things. So let's say a, a couple of the things is that, as I mentioned in the story or afterwards, the 1977 occupation, which had 1,415 people getting arrested, many of those people went back to their communities, not met, which were mostly from New England, but all over the country, and continued to organize in their communities. And, and it wasn't just about having demonstrations and doing civil disobedience. It was doing all sorts of kinds of, as we mentioned, street theater, passing out leaflets, showing films, having musical performances from musicians who were carrying the message. Um, the message of nuclear power's danger started to penetrate into the popular culture. You might remember a movie called The China Syndrome with Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon playing in major theaters. When that movie came out about a nuclear power plant meltdown, the nuclear industry said, well, that can never happen. And then there was a meltdown at the Three Mile Island plant in central Pennsylvania, which technically had a lot in common with this scenario that had happened in the movie that the nuclear industry has said was impossible. So at that point, in a sense, I think that we had prepared the public to be able to correctly interpret when Three Mile Island melted down that this was a serious thing. And support for nuclear power began to collapse. And not just collapsing at the public level, but collapsing on Wall Street and collapsing in Congress. And that led to a cascade of nuclear plants going down, of plants that had been on order being canceled. New Hampshire, Seabrook was an exception. One of the two reactors was canceled. The second reactor did go into operation, but it was one of the last nuclear reactors of its generation to power up. And had people paid attention to our calls at that time for more reliance on hydro, more reliance on solar, more reliance on wind, just think where we would be at this time. Yeah. Thanks, Arnie. Um, I'm going to share some pictures here. Um, I guess sometimes I hear people say, oh, well, you know, they were still in reactor. What good did Seabrook do? But I happen to know that there is a larger story always at work, so I appreciate hearing some about that. Um, Another thing I could say, Amy, is that the practice of nonviolence, which I think this is a good example of in this, uh, I forget the name of the photographer who took this picture of me getting arrested, but by our commitment to nonviolence, the movement was able to spread in ways and the techniques that we use spread into the gay rights movement, spread into the anti-apartheid movement, spread into lots of the other, into the, the re 
rebuilt nuclear disarmament movement that woke up again in the late uh, 70s and into the 80s. Um, and that was part of our, of our impact as well. All right. And this, can you see this one? This is, uh, I believe that this is a photo of people marching up the road onto the nuclear construction site on April 30th, 1977. Wow, nice. I'm in there somewhere. And some people, some other people in this, um, in our, our Zoom here tonight, were there with you. We're also in that, also oh. in that crowd and in the armories. That's great. But he's got a story. So the story of the Clamshell Alliance is a lot of stories. Yeah. Well, and we hope to hear more of them. So here's one a little lighter here. Um, in your long time at AFSC and in other movements, did you ever dress up as any other animal? Yes. In fact, um, Newt Gingrich, when he was the Speaker of the House, came to New Hampshire once to give a speech in Nashua. And people thought Newt was starting a campaign for president. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not running for president. I just want to come to New Hampshire because I've never seen a moose. So I went to the local costume store and rented a moose suit and demonstrated outside the hotel in Nashua where Newt Gingrich was speaking uh, in a moose suit carrying a, with a sign on it that said something like, stop the war on the poor. And um, when the reporters would ask me what my name was, I would say, my name is Mustafa. Where are you from? I'm from Mount Musalak. And I refused to guess. So this may be the first time, Amy, that I publicly divulged that, in fact, I was the person in the moose suit at the Newt Gingrich demonstration. Woo! We are honored! Is here, yeah. Ask the right question to get a, a, a secret out of you. So That's fun! Right. Well, thank you, Arnie. And like I said, um, we are looking forward to more stories from you. We oh, will God. keep asking. We have some um, other people here who can are quite capable of telling some of them. Yes, we will. Uh, we hope for many stories from many of you here. Hopefully, Arnie has inspired you and made you think of your own that you can then bring to us. And I didn't get to asking Rupa any questions because, like I said, in a few minutes, David Frainer and Rupa are going to, to have a conversation between the two of them that we will be privileged to get to listen to as well. First, I have some wrap-up things to tell you here. Thanks to everyone for being with us tonight, especially thanks to our tellers and our live audience. As I said, we're soon to move to our after-story conversation but let me start here with a special announcement. For the first time in a few years, True Tales Live will offer a live in-person show. On Friday, June 30th at 6.30 p.m. at the Portsmouth Senior Center, which used to be the Portsmouth Armory, I believe, we will bring you True Tales Live in Real Life, TTLIRL. Our program will feature six tellers, Please plan to attend. We'll have more info coming out soon on ticket sales and other details. 
Um, we are hoping that the event will also be a fundraiser for us. And because there are costs associated with putting it on, we're actually welcoming your help starting now. So if you're able to make a donation, even a really small donation, you know, it used to be when you came in, we'd have a basket and people would throw a few dollars in and we can't do that here. So we did set up um, a donate button at truetaleslivenh.org and appreciate if anyone is able to give something to us. So our next True Tales Live Zoom show is on Tuesday, May 30th at 7 p.m. The theme is Like a Fish Out of Water. You can register for it at truetaleslivenh.org. Our spring shows are now full, but our dates and themes for fall 2023 are posted on our website. We hope you'll go check them out and send us your story proposals. Most shows um, this year are gonna be on Zoom. We encourage you to attend one of our monthly Zoom workshops, usually on the first Tuesday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. The next one is May 2nd. Contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org if you want to be a teller, find out more. And again, truetaleslivenh.org is where you can register for the workshops as well. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand or as a podcast. Go to our website to access all of those options. Let's thank a few of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Beddingfield, Kamisha Foley, Tina Charpentier, and I am Amy Antonucci, and before we move to the backstory interview of Rupa Mohan by David Frainer, please join us for our minute of movement to shake off the Zoom cobwebs and have a little fun for our True Tales dance party. We have a great time with this and hope that you will have on your video and move at least a little bit and feel free to put on gallery so you see all of us dancing together. And John, I'm gonna, this is only 60 seconds, so Join us and then we'll uh, hear from David and Rupa.